0: Good morning, it's 8.30 on Monday, March 20th. I'm Michael Guidry in for Desiree Frazier, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, how the decriminalization of fentanyl test strips could reduce overdose deaths in Mississippi. Then the Mississippi lottery has reached a significant financial milestone. Plus, the not-so-black-and-white policy on books in Mississippi's prisons. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. According to the Mississippi Department of Health, 70% of overdose deaths in the state involve illicitly manufactured fentanyl, and it's blamed for about 70,000 opioid deaths every year in the United States. Last week, Governor Tate Reeves signed a bill that decriminalizes materials that will allow people to test illegal drugs to detect if they are spiked with fentanyl. Fentanyl is not illegal and is used in hospitals nationwide, but it is also widely added to drugs sold on the street. Around one in four pills obtained illegally are laced with the highly potent synthetic opioid. Now, fentanyl test strips will be made available as part as part of an effort to reduce opioid-related deaths. Dr. Catherine Pannell is a board member with the Mississippi State Medical Association. She tells our Kobe Vance how opioid use rose and how this new policy could save lives.
2: Early in um, the 1990s, we had what was called the opioid crisis, um, which came mostly from prescribed opioids um, that people were getting from physicians. And what ended up happening as a result of that they made stricter prescribing laws which reduced the amount of opiates that people were able to get from the doctor's office the physician's office so what ended up happening is that people started turning into more street drugs to get their opiates and this also led to what we now see as the fentanyl crisis because people were starting to get things off of the street and we because they're not regulated Um, Through pharmacies, they were oftentimes being laced with fentanyl, which is also an opiate, but it's much stronger, more powerful. It's 50 to 100 times more powerful than morphine.
0: So So we started
2: seeing a lot more um, pills being laced with fentanyl and many, many more overdose deaths. Uh, We're seeing now, uh, last year it was about one in six pills being laced with fentanyl, and now we're to the point where every one in four pills is laced with fentanyl. How are test strips going to be able to help in that Right. So the pills that people are getting now, whether it be a young college student that is, you know, borrowing a pill from a friend on Adderall to stay up at night or for someone that has substance abuse issues,
1: um, and
2: they're using these pills, it at least gives them a way to know if the product they're using, if it does have fentanyl in it, because otherwise there's no way to tell. You can't taste it, you can't smell it, nor can you see the fentanyl. Um, So what these strips do is basically you take a small portion off of the, the pill that you're about to use, And with a dropper, put a couple drops of water, and then you use the strip to just stick it in, and then it will change a color to indicate whether the presence of fentanyl is there. Um, So it basically gives someone basically time to think about whether it's worth using or not. If they know that this pill is laced with fentanyl, they're very much more likely not to use it at all or they're going to use it in smaller amounts or over a period of time instead of all at once, which increases the risk of an overdose death via respiratory depression. Um, So it just buys us time. It saves lives. It keeps people alive so that we can get them into treatment if needed. Um, So it's just a, a very effective harm reduction tool. Speaking on the saving lives, how deadly is fentanyl if used improperly? Um, it's extremely del- deadly because it's so powerful. Um, one pill literally can kill. Um, and like I said, the most people that are using, they have no idea that it's being laced. So they, they'll they take that whole pill and it's enough to kill you. How transformative do you think it's going to be that Mississippi has passed this law making it to where people can have a bit more reassurance when they are, are taking these pills? I think it's going to be hugely transformative. I think there's two ways that we get out of this fentanyl crisis, and one is education. And it's probably the, the, the way that we – is going to be the most effective at getting out of this crisis. But that takes time. It's going to take time to teach our youth so that harm reduction is an immediate solution to saving lives. So they're going to be able to test their products immediately. And if it's in there, they're not going to use, and therefore the, that it was a potential death that, that's going to be prevented. So uh, prevented. So I think we're going to see immediate reductions in deaths due to fentanyl overdoses. In the public health field, how do you think this is going to change the overall attitude towards making sure that people are, if they are, if they do have addictions, making sure that they are safe and trying to avoid having an overdose? We you know. It, I think it's going to hugely reduce the stigma associated with the test strips alone because prior to this bill being passed I mean the test strips were known as drug paraphernalia basically a tool to continue using drugs and I think with this law being passed the stigma can going to be greatly reduced because these are just going to be another um, legal acceptable form of harm reduction so I think people are going to be also more apt to use those as well as naloxone to save lives because it is going to be more mainstream, more talked about. It's no longer illegal, so it does have the stigma, and people are going to be more likely to um, obtain these life saving resources.
0: That's Dr. Catherine Pannell with the Mississippi State Medical Association. Coming up, millions of dollars in lottery funds are helping improve Mississippi's aging infrastructure. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
1: AutoCorrect on mpb think radio helping you correct your auto problems our host is coach charlie milton asc certified master technician
3: let me help save you some money working on your cars listen to our podcast AutoCorrect.
0: this is mississippi edition on mpb think radio i'm michael gidry the mississippi lottery has reached a significant financial milestone this fiscal year, which ends June 30th, lottery, lottery officials have transferred just over $84 million into the state coffers. As the lottery law stipulates, the first $80 million goes towards roads and bridges. Any additional funds over that amount go to the Education Enhancement Fund. Willie Simmons is Mississippi's Transportation Commissioner for the Central District. He tells us what it means for the state's aging infrastructure.
3: We are hitting a jackpot, uh, hit a jackpot with the lottery. Uh, As you know, in 2018, uh, I held a bill on the floor of the Senate where we passed the lottery bill out. And in that bill, referred to as the Alice G. Clark Lottery Fund, we put in that bill a stipulation that the first $80 million would go to the Department of Transportation for infrastructure because we had such a great need for new recurring monies for our infrastructure, highways and bridges. So, fortunately, we were able to get that bill passed in 2018, and the lottery has done extremely well. Uh, no one really thought when we passed the bill that it would even reach the $80 million. But here we are in 2023, March, and we've already exceeded the $80 And as you well know, all over the $80 million goes to Department of Education. So what we're doing, uh, when I became commissioner in 2019, uh, so much need for doing repairs on our highways, especially our two-lane highways that have not been done in the maintenance on them for 20 years in many cases. So we did three commissioners, Commissioner King and Commissioner Carwell and myself, decided that we was going to commit the lottery money, the $80 million, to pave those highways, the two-lane highways that you see in the state of Mississippi.
0: Since 2019, when when the lottery began, do you have any numbers on the number of like two-lane roads, rural roads, uh, and state highways that that have been able to be either rebuilt, repaved, um, restored uh, through this $80 million? Uh, Each commissioner uh,
3: was assured that we were going to get kind of an equity amount uh, going to each of our districts for the various highways. So the very first year, we committed $15 million because we didn't know exactly how much was going to come in. We committed $15 million to each commissioner's district—north, central, and the southern states—and we started paving highways. So you have so highways up in Holmes County, a county that had not seen any major pavement work in many, many years. So we started doing projects in Holmes County. We have now put more than six million, ten million dollars. I'm sorry, more than ten million dollars in the Holmes County in the immediate area. Uh, highway 49 going <clears throat> going from interstate 220 to the madison county line that was about an eight million dollar project that we did last year and paving it uh we now have on the construction highway 18 from raymond down to the Kapai
0: county line past utica that we have one the construction that's being
3: paid today as we talk
0: now that we've we kind of seen the 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 impact that the lottery can have. Uh, Is there any appetite within the, within the department of transportation uh, and the commissioners to, to, and and to elevate that 80 million? Is there a need to elevate that, to ask lawmakers to revisit? Are you happy with that $80 million threshold every year contingent upon the fact that the the lottery seems to be successful enough to, to fulfill that obligation every year?
3: We are very happy with the $80 million that we are getting Uh, our highways uh, in need of uh, much, much more than the $80 million a year for maintenance in the past. Uh, of course, we do not want to compete with education and poor money from education that they're getting, but we do, as a commissioner, need more money for our infrastructure. We're very pleased and grateful to the legislation. Last year they gave us a $1.4 billion budget, which is far greater than we have had in the past. They're also looking at this year giving us additional money. Uh, you saw what the governor recommended, additional money, the Senate and the House leadership, Speaker Gunn and Lieutenant Governor move along with the state legislation, are proposing to give us more money. But we do need more recurring dollars. Uh, so, whether it be the lottery or whether it be some other ways and means that the legislature body can give us this one time money that they are looking at this year but also give us recurring dollars for the future. Because, again, while $80 million is doing a fabulous job, and we are very happy that we hit that jackpot and able to do that, uh, we need over $300 million uh, to come into our system for us to just maintain and take care of those highways. So a lot has really been good for us. Uh, What I would just like to say is to the citizen and to the legislative body, Thank you for giving us those funds and resources to do that. But please do understand, if we are going to be able to truly maintain our highways and provide safety and build capacity projects in the future, we're going to need much more
0: money than what we are currently receiving. Well, Mr. Willie Simmons, Commissioner of Transportation for the Central District of Mississippi, thank you so much for taking some time to speak to us this morning. Thank you, Mike. It's my pleasure. Anytime. Coming up, the not-so-black-and-white policy on books in Mississippi's prisons. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.
2: On Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, you get information about foods you should eat to stay in good health and tips on how to stay active. I'm Josie Bidwell, host of Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit, an Associate Professor of Preventive Medicine at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Listen to the show every Monday at 11 or subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy with your preferred podcasting app.
4: Deep South Dining is the show all about the culture of Southern flavor. From fried chicken and collard greens to shrimp and grits and a glass of sweet tea. Subscribe now to the podcast using any podcast app or download our
0: MPB public media app. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Michael Gidry. Book bans are the subject of controversies in public schools and libraries around the country. But when it comes to books in prisons, it can be more restrictive. Over the past year, reporters for the Marshall Project asked every state prison system for book policies and lists of banned publications. About half the state said they kept such lists, which contained more than 50,000 titles. In Mississippi, though, the policy isn't so cut and dry. There are restrictions on mail and what an inmate can receive, but nothing specific about what they can read. Mississippi Editions Desiree Frazier talked to Commissioner Burl Cain about books in the state's prison system.
4: On a book to book basis, but we don't ban a book, just saying, okay, this book can't come because of some time, or really, we. We don't look at books as much as we look at magazines and publications, and so we have restrictions of what they can't have in our policy. So uh, we follow the policy, and the policy is going to ban such things as escape maps or, you know, satanic stuff or things that will be corruptive to the inmates and so forth and cause them to be depressed or, I mean, you know, depressed or have problems themselves. You know that we receive through the mail all kind of publications and we have all kind of pictures and things like that and we look at it and we refuse based on what we see in it.
1: Who makes that determination?
4: We have a mail room and we have people there that's trained and know what the policy is so they follow the policy and if they see something banned and they want to keep it out and they'll pass it up the line to the superintendent. So we don't do a lot of book banning. We we try to be, our prisons are different a little bit than than some of those like where well, you said Florida and Texas banned books. We our job is to correct deviant behavior. Our job is to bring people back to normal and get them to be back a productive citizen. And so we're not punitive, really. We're we're not going to ban a lot of things. What you lose is you can't go to McDonald's, and you have to get counted all the time, you can't leave, and you have to stay here. But that's the punishment. It's not to deny you, you know, the, and censor everything you have. If it's about drug paraphernalia, how to manufacture drugs, how to do things like that, no, you can't have it. And if it's about making bombs or getting stuff that somebody would mail in from the Internet, then you can't have it.
1: Hardcover books they have to get from the library. How extensive is
4: prison library? Hardback books are risky business because in the back of the book they put shanks or they can move you know, stuff in the back of the book. That's why we don't like hardbacks. In the cover of the book, they can carve it out and hide stuff in the cover, and the book is thick. They can cut out the pages and put a cell phone or put a weapon in it. We don't like big old books. We don't like hardbacks, could we've been burned with that before.
1: I see here where it does mention that offenders can have publications containing pictures depicting nudity and some types of sexual acts.
4: So we have to get in tune with courts. And so we fought Penthouse and, and Playboy. Well, we lost. And so because we just did. And so because that's how the public went, you know. So when you lose in court, then you got a lesson where you can't ban that. So the experience tells us that we we think we'll lose in court. Don't go to the problem and trouble of putting everybody through it and the cost of it. It's, it's already been tried we lost. So we lost on those magazines.
1: So Playboy and Penthouse are allowed. Yes. Can you get a subscription in prison for magazines?
4: Now, here's what's going to happen. Every issue that comes in, they're going to look at it. If they think that it's too out there, then they'll ban that issue. So see, that's why we don't say the book, but it doesn't mean we won't ban the magazine, but it'll be a certain issue. Some can't get in, some can't. Some don't don't pass the test. It's a real pain to deal with all that
0: stuff.
1: Well, moving on, this week you're participating in a Baylor Pepperdine study about what rehabilitation and reentry programs work best. Tell us about this, please.
4: Here's the thing. We we do things that other prisons don't do across the country because we out are more progressive than most. And so if what we do is, so we can prove it, then we, use, we believe in evidence-based research. And I do that, and I've done that with Baylor, Angola. We did a five-year study in Angola on the prison seminary model because we knew that it worked because we brought about more rehabilitation. But then what we did is we did not define it to any particular religion, so that everybody could go to the seminary—atheist, any religion—everybody could go that was in the prison. And so then what that did, though, that produced mentors, that produced ministers, you might say, but more mentors and brought about moral rehabilitation to the prison. So then we realized that moral people don't commit crime. Immoral people do. So morality became the way we go. So therefore, we did the research to prove that the prison was less violent when we had moral rehabilitation programs and that the inmates who, who graduated from these programs, then they, they get an accredited degree, then they can actually... Become teachers to teach other inmates skills and in trade and educate and do GED programs and literacy so that everybody can read and write. I give you an example on death row in Louisiana, inmates were not taught to read or write. So I said, how foolish! Because I want them to be able to read the rules. So we're going to teach them to read and write. So to come to Mississippi and do the same thing again, then it proves in the industry that we can change the way corrections are done in America and we can be more normal. We can have more education. We can have more inmates that can get out of prison and have a job because that's why they come back to prison. They can't get a job. But if we teach skills and trade and literacy in prison, then they're employable. And also we settle them down, and they're not violent. So our violence goes down. That's what you see at Parksman today. Parksman is not what you saw Two years ago, it has totally changed.
1: You mentioned Parchment, and it's not the same place as it was in 2019, the beginning of 2020. Because there were several lawsuits because of the conditions at Parchment, those lawsuits were ultimately dropped. How did you feel about that?
4: Well, I'd say what, the lawsuits were dropped because the issues weren't there anymore. So that's why they were dropped. So I felt good about it because that means if the prison had changed. There was no fines, no damage lost to the Mississippi, and that's good. And the prison is not out of compliance. And the same thing is with the American Correctional Association. Parksman is again accredited with American Correctional Association. I'm paying inmates now. That's a big deal. You should pay them. It's a big deal to them. And we set aside a million to pay them, and we got another million this year. So million that we generate through the Inmate Welfare Fund is going back to pay inmates to work. Now, there's a reason for that. If I pay you to work, then I can make you go to work. But if I don't pay you, I can't.
1: Are you seeing a visible change in attitudes?
4: Absolutely. We moved an inmate from Parchment to SMCI. They weren't paying maintenance yet. And the inmate goes to the warden and says, hey, I got to go back to Parchment. I need my check. He said, well, how much are you making? He said, I make $0.26 an hour. But it's important to me because I can buy honey buns. I don't get any money from home. And that's giving me several dollars a a week. And so I need to go to the store and get me something good. So we started paying it to SMCI because they wanted it. What we really want to take place is we don't want to build any new prison. We want to cut our population because we want you not to come back to prison. And to do that, we have to equip you for a job. And we have humongous. Skills and trades school that are starting. And so we want everybody taking a test when they come into the prison. And everybody then is going to work in that, and learn that skill or trade that you have a propensity to do and not what you want to do, but what you can do. And so that's big. Plus, we want everybody to have a GED. So we've identified all the people that are one year short, and the women are all in GED school if they don't have one, and the men that are getting out this year.
1: Are you doing anything with employers to um, help them be open to hiring people who have served time?
4: Yes, and the way we did that is we hired, we hired inmates with felonies that were released from Angola that had live sentences to be chaplains and so forth that had these seminary degrees, but also to work in the high voltage electricity, one of them is, and so forth, because I can't ask you to hire them. As, a, as an employer in the in community, if I won't hire myself,
1: is that well, happening yeah, in Mississippi?
4: That wasn't happening in any state. Nobody would hire an ex-convict in prison. All prisons said, "Oh, you got a felony; we can't hire you." But yet, I want the I want the the bread company to hire you, and I want the store to hire you, but I won't hire you. Well, that's foolish. I got to hire you and show you how you were. If for me to hire you, then y'all can hire. So we started hiring them, I and that's part of the research is to prove that you can hire inmates and they'll work hard for us, they'll work hard in the community.
1: Commissioner Burrell Kane, Mississippi Department of Corrections, thank you so much for taking time to speak with us about these issues.
4: Okay, thank you.
0: This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio.